Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Episode 15, a conversation with Matthew Burroughs, UK-based artist and founder and director of Artist Support Pledge. Hi, Matt. Uh, very nice to have you. Hi, Daniela. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be with you today. <laughs> you're an artist. You're a painter yourself. You're sitting right now in your studio, as I just saw before. But one of the very, very special things uh, you do also is uh, artist support projects. And you're doing them since 2008. And then you started this year the artist support pledge during Corona, uh, which has the subtitle A Generous Culture for Artists and Makers. Um, and I would like to start with that and go deeper into why you started at all the artist support projects. Yeah, well, I started our support projects really because I started to notice that a lot of artists, once they've been out of sort of formal education and in the art world for five, 10 years, often struggle to find a sense of their own kind of internal reward systems because so much of what was going on around them was about sort of external validation. And I think this causes quite a lot of trouble sort of internally and creatively uh, and can actually you know, lead to many artists sort of stopping making work at all. So I'd been sort of looking at this idea for, for a number of years and then I'm thinking, well, how do we get around this? What do we do to support and maintain an artist's practice throughout their career, not just the beginning of the career? There's an awful lot of support for artists when they're setting up, but there's a sort of assumption in a way that once you're out and established in the world, you don't need that support anymore. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think the experience of many artists is almost the reverse. Actually, the more external pressure there is on what you do, the more support you need within the, the culture and the economy, the sort of sort of the community of art. And probably 15, 20 years ago, one of the things that I started to notice was happening is that many of the sort of tight knit, smaller communities that were based around often buildings, studio complexes, groups of artists that met up regularly were being broken apart because of the cost of housing, etc. So people were living further apart. They weren't in the studios as, as much as they used to be. So those small communities of artists who were together every day went there. So I thought, well, okay, how do we start to create networks and support systems for artists who in many ways were already out in the world doing things and that's where art support projects came from really was to try and do that so i set up this uh, project which basically meets we meet about four or five times a year normally i meet with people no more than four or five people at a time And we meet for about two days and we go through a sort of series of processes which I've developed through um, researching different ways of thinking about being not in creative but community, but also kind of critically engaged so from everything from uh, neuroscience to myth to 
sports coaching, all sorts of business studies, all sorts of things that, um, that in some way can help contribute to building a, an effective support structure for artists, um, establishing themselves and developing themselves in the community. And I mean, this was very playful. It's very experimental. And then over a kind of 10 year period, what I started to notice was that actually if you gave a context that was a context of trust and generosity so that you implicitly trusted your, your fellow uh, participants, that, that was made explicit that actually this is an environment of trust where you can say anything and reveal anything that you feel appropriate. And it wasn't to go out, out of the room. So in, by giving that straight away, it sort of lets the pressure off. You don't have to perform anymore. And also that you are generous enough to allow others to do that and then to support them in that activity. And also the thing with generosity is it goes both ways. You have to be generous enough to listen as well as generous enough to contribute. So I, I started sort of playing with this idea probably about 10 years ago of trust and generosity. And I realized very quickly that it was really effective at developing really deep kind of critical engagement with what artists were doing and enabling them to become more focused, aware, and kind of playful and curious about what they were doing. So this sort of culture of trust and generosity developed. And then out of that, other projects started to develop. So we started doing kind of external projects just as in small groups. So we did something in Hastings, which is a, a town near where I live called the Observer Building uh, in 2015, where we took over a disused uh, newspaper factory, huge building and converted it into a gallery for a year and a half and put on international shows. And we did all this just by using the culture of trust and generosity we didn't have any money we managed to get the money from property developers um we just put this exhibition on we had 150 international artists through through the doors did an exhibition every month and it was just in a way testament to the fact that you could you could uh, you could do an awful lot just with the will of the community if they bought into that act of generosity Mm -hmm. Uh, so really when you know that's that's the sort of foundations that's the 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 ground out of which our support pledge was developed. There's so many questions, I really don't know where to start. One thing is that um, still you never cease being an artist yourself. So it could, some, some kind of, of more, I'd say institution could have arised out of that. That's one thing. But the second thing, which is probably more important, is you speak of trust and generosity, which I think is really great. Uh, so you think, obviously, that the structure which is already existing, like, for example, with galleries, that do you mm. think they don't provide that trust and generosity? I don't think it's that uh, galleries can't or don't provide that. I mean, I've worked with lots of galleries and mm. they vary. Uh, so the one I work with now is very good at dealing with things like that. I think it's more of the, the culture in which they exist, which, you know, an individual gallery cannot control. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, that's, it's much bigger than them. So in a way, what our support projects was doing was creating this kind of microclimate. It's saying, okay, you, you come to this place, we, we inhabit this landscape for two days, and within that landscape, we enjoy the hospitality of that trust and generosity, and we, we are nourished by it. And then we go back out into the reality, <laughs> because reality is what it is. You can't, you can't, in a way, control that. You can only control your response to it. So in a way, it was a sort of feeding station. That's where I sort of think about it. So it's not saying that there aren't, you know, that other people aren't being mm-hmm. trusting and generous. It's about saying, okay, how do you nourish that within yourself? Because so much of what an artist does is in isolation. Mm-hmm. And when they are out of that isolation, they are public. So they're exposed. And when you're exposed, it's very difficult to be 100% exposed because you're always having to defend something. So be able to be in an environment where you don't have to defend anything. You can let it all out if you like, then it's actually extremely rewarding. So I, I found that that was a really um, effective way of sort of to just, I mean, really it was just about developing in-depth critical debate really at first. That's also something which you, you, ha- you have at art school, but later on you don't have so much. Yeah, and I mean, that really was what it was about. You know, a lot of artists really struggle with that later because they don't have, you know, if an art school's good and if the, if the, the professors and tutors are doing their job really well, they nurture that ability to be honest mm-hmm. and, to be, and to be vulnerable whilst also being rigorous and robust. And I think that's really, it's a really difficult thing to get right. You know, some, some, and, not, and that's often down to individual tutors who bring a character to it that enables that, that intimacy of trust amongst the students, whilst, whilst a kind of critical rigor. That, that almost has a kind of, uh, without wanting to psychologize it too much, but almost like a theoretic quality. Because that's, I mean, in art, generally, I think you need this mix between openness and vulnerability. And as you said, rigor, which is almost impossible. It's very hard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean really, it, that, that's what it's about. It's about maintaining that and giving a kind of place where you can exercise it fully wholly so when you go out back out into the world you are sort of um able to sort of exercise that better because you've you sort of practiced it if you like i mean that that was sort of the, the original idea i mean over the years you know i've been doing it for 12 years now we've played around with a lot of different ideas and one of the things that actually i think has been really interesting is initially one of the things that a lot of artists wanted to do was really to talk about developing their career because obviously that for many artists is always on the forefront of their minds. You know, how do you keep going? How do you go to the next step? Over the years of doing it, what became apparent was actually that was a smaller cog in the wheel, not insignificant, but a smaller cog in the wheel. And that actually some of the things that underlie that and give that um, a kind of a strength and an ability to be mobile were actually much more deep-rooted and much more about the character of the artist and their behavior. 
So it's been actually really, you know, in, those respect, in that respect, it's really interesting because often it's mm -hmm. talking about values, you know, the values which you participate in your work, in your community, in the art world. How do you engage with your fellow artist, your, your gallery, your collector, your critic? In, which, in what way do you approach that? And that can be done in a way which is fruitful and rewarding for all, or it can be done in a way which actually eventually sort of implodes. It eventually gets to the point where it will destroy either you, it or them. And I, you know, I started to realize that probably maybe five or six years ago. So a lot of what, what I do with our support projects, I have been doing with our support projects is much more holistic in a way and looking at the artist as a whole, as an individual in their community, within their value systems, within their network, within their career structure. Because actually, if there's, if there's one element that is out of sync, if there's an element in there that really isn't fitting properly, it just causes problems for everything else. So it's, you know, in a way, I sort of think of it as a bit like a kind of artist MOT, you know, with a service included. You, you kind of take everything apart, you clean up, put the broken bits away and put new parts in and put it all back together again and then send it out on its way. And you're all doing this together? Or is this that you're, you're kind of sort of like the, the group leader? Um, because those skills, where did you develop those skills to be able to do all of this? It depends. I, I do groups where I do it together. So I have groups where I'm in personally involved in my own sort of network of groups. And there are also groups where I, in a way, I sort of lead it. And what I try to do is I, I teach them how to do it, if you like. And then they go away and they do it for themselves. So they carry on as a group and they meet up and they do it. And they, we keep in touch. And, uh, you know, I'm always contributing new ideas to what they're doing. In terms of how I learned to do this, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, I've always been doing it. I mean, I, I, when I left art school, um, in whenever that was, um, 1995 or something. Um, I always really was very much engaged with sort of teaching mm -hmm. on a fairly light level. I was never really doing more than one or two days a week, but I was very, I've always been very passionate about, in, you know, passing on knowledge and contributing to learning to, for others whatever generation that is because i think that if one as a community does that you all benefit i mean i benefit tremendously from it i don't consider myself a teacher really in any way at all actually i, I consider myself sort of 100 the artist and i think in a way what i do is i think that the teaching element of it is part of being an artist it's not separate mm -hmm. it's not an add-on it's not something you have to do For me, it's just something that's a very natural set of relationships because talking about what I do and exploring how to do it and what is specifically, you know, what is a good approach for each individual artist, I think is how we all learn. So I think learning is something every artist should be engaged in and, and learning is not just about yourself, it's about your community. So in a way, I don't, I, I've never really kind of broken that apart. And in terms of, you know, how do I learn to do all this? I mean, I, 
I'm, I'm a little bit obsessive about it, I think, as some would say. <laughs> I, I'm constantly kind of researching different ways of thinking about it from, you know, everything. I mean, I look through everything. I don't leave any stone unturned. I, I've had this sort of compulsive disorder, I think, that if there's something that I think could help, I want to know what it is. Uh, and whether that is sort of, I mean, at the moment, my kind of particular interest is in sort of pre-history societies and looking at um, models of sustainability and kind of cultural sustainability. And largely that's what's influenced our support pledge. But I look through everything from, you know, religions, myths, science, psychology, neuroscience, you know, anything. If, if I think in some way that there's, there's learning to be had, and it can in some way enrich our experience of learning, then I, I, I'll, be, I'll be digging in it. But uh, don't you think that this kind of approach, this more holistic approach, uh, would, would be really valuable to the whole art world? I, I mean, you could invite gallerists to join this community. You could uh, invite other players in the art world to join. Yeah, I mean, I, I have toyed with that idea and thought about doing it. And I have actually um, done this with some businesses who, who asked me to do it. I just happened to, you know, have met people at dinner parties, etc. And they've invited me along to do it. Uh, it's not designed for that, but actually it is applicable to any form of learning. Really, it's about an approach to life. It's about an approach to creativity, an approach to kind of the context in which you learn. So it could be used in any context. But the only reason really why I haven't taken it further into other fields is, you know, I spend my, my, my career as being an artist and there's only so much time I have spare to do these things. And so doing the support projects, really, I sort of thought, okay, realistically, I can probably do a couple of days every two months. It's quite demanding. Um, it's, it's very intense. It, it takes, you know, a week, although it's only two days, it's sort of a week of my time. Uh, because I've got to sort of build up to it and then there's stuff after it. So, you know, a week out every two months, mm -hmm. I think is, is quite a lot. It's quite a commitment on my part. Um, so I, I haven't extended it further than that. But I, I mean, I have actually worked with one gallery once a few years ago, maybe about eight, nine years ago. I did actually do a, pro, uh, do a few sessions with the gallery. But it can, yes, it could be used in any context. And, and I do use it, I do talk about it when I go to teach in universities. I thought about something like, like Bob Geldof, for example, you know, mm -hmm. who, who was a musician and then he started this uh, band aid thing and then it became so big and so valuable. And I was wondering because I think it is very valuable and important what you're doing right now with this, all these support projects. Um, mm. And so I thought it might just become bigger and bigger and might overwhelm you because the world might need it. That's one thing. And um, so that was, I was wondering how you bring this together with your own artistic practice, especially because at least as we define the artist right now, it's a very individual thing. So as you said, all artists are working on their own and then it becomes this community thing in what you're doing. So it, there is a kind of contradiction in that. It can sound contradictory, but I don't think it is. I think that, you know, throughout history, there has been elements of communities who have sought solitude. 
and their solitude has not been sought simply because that individual needs to be left alone. It's because they, they find solace in that solitude that is for the good of the community, whether you can call them mystics or monks or shamans or whatever. And I think in a way, you know, the artist plays that part. They, they are the sort of archetypal sort of mythic hero that, who go into this world of solitude. They descend into something and they return to tell, tell the community what they find. So I think the solitude, is, it's not contradictory to me to say that seeking a life of solitude is away from being community-minded. I think really the shift here is about values. And I think where our support pledge, where I've tried to position our support pledge is to say that when this artist when this artist who has been in solitude returns to the community, it is not to show off. It is not to say, look at me. It is to say, look at this. And it's, it can sound like a subtle difference, but actually it's to the benefit of the community rather than merely to the benefit of the artist. And just changing that value system away from the idea that it's all about the artist. It's all about making the artist into a genius or some sort of strange, idiosyncratic kind of buffoon sort of playing out this role for the entertainment of society. I mean, that can have, a, have its part, of course. But I think actually that even if they're the buffoon, that buffoonery is, is part of the community's health. So it's not, I, I want to get away from this idea in a way that art, being the artist is about this kind of narcissist who just does what they want all the time. Actually, they do what they want, but doing what you want is really hard. And in doing what you want, in a way, what you're doing is you're playing, you're, you're giving the community, you're giving the world outside of the artist access to what it really means to be holy yourself and that's a very difficult thing to do and that's very different from the artist who play acts the sort of the genius or the narcissist or whatever and it can look the same you know that that's where it's tricky and you know and the media love it they love it when the artist plays the part and plays you know this sort of crazy artist but actually, I just don't think it helps anybody. It doesn't help them. It doesn't help the community. It doesn't help the art world. It's entertaining for a minute. But actually, I think if we're really going to give artists their true value, we do actually have to listen to what that solitude has brought them. And that's a real skill. It's a skill not only to do for the listener, for the audience, but it's a skill that the artist can come back and in, a, in an articulate way put before the world what they've found. But don't you think that right now, uh, the way our world functions, not only the art world, that those values are not really like in high demand? Yeah, I don't think by me saying this, it's going to change the world. I'm not naive, you know, I'm not sort of, I'm realistic. But I think what our support pledge proves is that actually just proposing those values into the world and giving a platform for people to exercise them proves that actually there are enough people out there 
who want to live that way, think that way, behave that way, think that those values matter. Now, I'm not saying everyone on our support pledge buys into that. Of course they don't. You know, there's any system, any culture has those on the, out, on the, on the margins of it who, are, who aren't wholly bought into it. But I think what it's proving is that there are other ways to think and feel and behave and believe in, in the systems and the values that we, we bring to things. And, you know, to go back to one of your early questions about, you know, whether it's possible to take this into, you know, an organization or institution, um, how, how do you establish it as a, as a bigger platform, if you like? I mean, I have been working with this and um, on many levels, technologically, whether it's possible to come up with a, a technological platform that actually instills these values into the technology. Mm -hmm. so you know so much technology i mean technology really the whole premise of technology is to make something easier make one task easier to make it more something easier to do more accessible to do so one of the things with so much technology is then what happens then is it gets used for the you know if you look at say instagram which is the platform that that our support pledge uses it's designed to create links across the community connectivity and one of the things that does, it creates pockets of popularity. Mm -hmm. So you get people who will crave that popularity. You'll get people who, who just want more and more and more of that. And so they'll do whatever it takes to get that popularity. And in a way, one of the, one of the things that I've been trying to do with our support pledge is not deny that that happens because that's reality. That is the reality of Instagram. That's just the reality of the, the way the world works. But to with subtle interventions, cultural interventions, by shifting value systems and codes of practice, we use those algorithms and we use that, those things to actually generate more equality and a sustainable economy. So for example, one of the things that uh, we came up with was this idea of artists posting an in-view. And an in-view is a post that any artist can do they put an in-view red tile, and then they follow that with seven artists who are in their community on artist support pledge, or they're looking at. So what that does is if someone is following, say they're following me, and they go to my work, and they'll look at my in-view and go, well, Matthew's looking at X, Y, and Z, I'll look at them. So it, it, rather than it being driven purely by me being popular, it's allowing my popularity to say, Yes, but look at these two. Go to, go to the, you know, all you gotta do is click on their account. It's very easy. And it, it just very neatly pushes the community sideways so that you're not constantly been driven by the high stakes popularity um, of, the, of the minority, if you like. Mm -hmm. So it's just by subtle cultural interventions. And that sort of brings me around to this idea of an organization. I'm working on what that might be and how it might be structured because it's complicated because there are many you know structural issues in that in terms of how do you set something like that up mm -hmm. especially with this in terms of a moral context because as soon as you have an organization you have hierarchy as soon as you have hierarchy you have power as soon as you have power it's exercised and one of the things that i'm trying to do with our support pledge is make it as light touch and as effective as possible and one of the best ways of doing that is through culture. 
As soon as you do things through systems and organizations, it's slow, clunky, and it involves power. Culture moves across networks very quickly. Ideas, values, behavior, that can move rapidly, like fire, just goes across the system because there's nothing to stop it other than people saying yes or no. So it's, that's why our support pledge is built on this, this cultural system, this cultural idea and a code of practice, which is just a set of behaviors. Buy into this idea, sell your work at this price, and at the end of that, you support a peer. It's very simple. There's no, you don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to sign on the dotted line. You don't have to join anything. You just got to behave in that way and you become part of that community. So there are lots of sort of ethical questions about how to maintain that, the integrity of that, but also sustain it. Because as I've found out over the last five and a half months, it takes a lot of work to do this. Mm -hmm. um, this is why I also I wanted to ask you exactly about these past five and a half months, because this is how I um, heard first about artist support pledge, because I saw it on the Instagram actually of one of the artists I'm working with, Paul Morrison, yeah. and um, also Andrew Renton on one of my podcasts spoke very enthusiastically about it. And that was a very real support in the way that um, really money was generated to help artists in these hard times. Could you say a little bit more about um, that part of Artist Support Pledge? Yeah, well, I mean, it started on, so I think, 16th of March when, you know, lockdown was being proposed and galleries were closing, art fairs were closing, you know, I mean, you know the story, the art world was grinding to a halt. And it was, it's almost as if this wave of despair flooded the, the you know, social media and my email inbox and all the rest of it. And, you know, I was literally just sitting writing emails at the time. And I thought, okay, I've got to do something. And, and I didn't really question <laughs> whether I should do something. It was just, I had to do something. Mm -hmm. And, I thought, okay, how do, how do we generate money right now? And I wrote it, sort of wrote down on a notebook by my, my computer, what my, I just literally wrote assets. And I wrote two things down. That was artwork and also this culture of trust and generosity. I had that, I developed it, had this network of people, had the conceptual concept. I knew what it meant, I believed in it, and I could work with it. And I knew that all artists have work in their studio that never makes it into the mainstream art market. Normally because it's, it's too small, you know, it's too small, insignificant in terms of scale and material value. So it wouldn't, it doesn't make it into the mainstream market because it can't sell for high enough price for everybody to make sufficient profit out of it. So there's all this work sitting in artist studios that never make it into the mainstream market. So I thought, okay, lots of, every artist has this stuff. The product is in the world already. It's there to be sold. I've just got to come up with a marketplace to make that accessible. Um, and I'd, I've been thinking, you know, for years and years, like, a, like many artists, I think, I've been sort of toying with this idea in the back of my head, thinking there must be a way of, of selling all this stuff that we accumulate in the studios. So I just came up with this idea, okay, well, what's, what's the, the equation of 
the you know what what is the the sale price and what is the uh, at what point you reach this idea of the pledge so to sort of go back a little bit i came up with this idea that if you sold work for a, a fixed amount no more than it could be less and at this point it was 200 pounds or 200 usd or 200 euros so we kept it really simple and then a certain amount of sales you would take that amount and pay it on by buying somebody else's work so you were spreading that support across the community and supporting your peers and so i did this by saying 200 pounds the maximum you could sell it for and a thousand pounds was the point when you reach your threshold that you then spend 200 pounds on another artist's work so that was the simple formula yeah one of the things that that does is not only does it put money back into the system but more importantly is i mean most people are focused on the fact that it's artists paying money back into the system which it does but you could just have other people paying into the system why it matters that artists are doing it is that they take more risks so they will support their colleagues and their peers and their studio colleagues and their friends and artists who they look at and admire but maybe don't know so the money doesn't it, it's sort of the cash the liquidity of it flows sort of horizontally across the economy really quickly because it spreads out from those artists who are being who are selling quickly and readily the money spreads from them across their networks and so forth and so forth across the community so in a way what it is is i always describe it as a sort of horizontal economy rather than our usual vertical economy which is the one we're used to where it's like a pyramid you know there's very few people on top who are very very wealthy and then as you go down the pyramid there are more and more people with 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 less cash that's the nature of industrialized capitalist society but if you create a horizontal economy where actually you can only rise so far up because to you can't you can't uh, become super wealthy by selling work at 200 pounds but you can make a living out of it if you're selling two or three a day you're making a good living at it and a lot of artists are but you're also then helping support your friends colleagues uh, and those you who you look at so it's it's a, it's a very kind of effective way of transferring finance across the economy so it's not artists who sell aren't just the ones who might be popular they're artists who are supported by peers so it creates in a way this sort of double system there's buyers who come in from outside who might not be part of the art world at all but just want to buy some art to put on their wall and they will exercise their taste however they see fit uh, and that's the joy of it for them but then you get the artists who will say but i know this artist who's really great and i'd really love to buy one of their works and actually the price level the 200 pounds is not so great that nobody feels like it's not attainable mm -hmm. And that once you reach your pledge and the fact that it's 200 pounds you're giving away is irrelevant because actually what you're doing is you're supporting a peer and you're building your own collection. You're becoming a patron. So it has this uh, very compelling idea that the artist becomes patron. It's very um, convincing and uh, just a great idea. And as far as I heard, it worked out super well 
so a lot of people accepted it and came into it. Uh, do you know how many artists participated all in all? Uh, it's difficult to know exactly how many participated. It's a, so far there's, a, there's uh, more than 350,000 posts and each of those posts can have up to 10 images and um, actually up to nine images because they have to have the tile on too. And some of those can be additions. So, you know, it, the amount of work that's on it can be in the millions now. Wow. And there are, there are 65 plus thousand followers of the actual Art Support Pledge account, but that people don't have to follow the account to participate in the hashtag. So we don't know exactly what the individual numbers are at the moment, other than, you know, it's quite hard to actually say how many of those are individuals and how many of those are repeats. Mm -hmm. But it obviously, especially during this time, really helped some artists uh, to continue and just to, to make a living when probably either they have no galleries or the galleries are not able to sell right now because they sell much more expensive work. So it's a brilliant idea. Um, how do you think, do you think those idea could be developed into the future? Do you think this would be a great idea for the market in general to become more equal and to have more participants in it? Yeah, I think there's two, two issues there. I think one of the things that I think this has proved is you can have another economy that runs alongside our, our, you know, our usual mainstream market, which we're used to, because this doesn't compete with it. You know, selling work for 200 pounds, most of the artists who are selling the work on this pledge are never going to be putting that work in a mainstream gallery mm -hmm. because, I mean, as you know, the, the costs on selling a piece of work from a gallery wall are considerable. So the prices have to be considerable. Because this gets rid of all of that and because the work is largely kind of small and in nature, the cost can be low enough. So it's not, it's not a replacement of the current economy. It's, it can work alongside it. One of the things that, you know, I've talked to a lot of galleries about when I set this up, you know, there's a lot, as it started becoming more successful, you know, I was talking to my gallery and other galleries and we sort of discussing, okay, well, where's this going? You know, what does it mean? You know, cause it was, it mm -hmm. was so new. And one of the things I realized was actually within a week, it was been so, it was so successful. I, most of my friends and colleagues were making a living out of it and a good living. Not only that, they were making many of them double what they were earning before at the lockdown. So it, it, it had proved to be not only a support network and support structure, but actually they were thriving on it. So what it actually was doing was it was giving artists, it was make, allowing their studios to be more sustainable. And this idea of sustainability is sort of really integral to our support pledge that actually, if we want artists to be doing what they do, which is getting into the studio, making work, engaging in it wholly and being able to resource it properly, then actually having multiple economic markets for their product is a very good way of doing that. I mean, traditionally, I guess you would say that the print market did that, but the print market now is, is quite dominated by, you know, either very popular work or celebrity. Mm -hmm. And actually it's very difficult just for the average artist to really make a dent in the print market. 
in a meaningful way. And, and again, because you get the same set of problems because there's so many people involved. There's the printers, there's the you know, photographers, the shippers, the, the gallery, you know, everybody involved. You're just not making sufficient profit. But if the artist in a very, very light touch way can be selling work that has already been produced in their studio just by the way they make work and engage in their practice. And they're doing that in a very light touch way that it's not going to infringe upon their mainstream work, then I think it's a win-win for everybody because the galleries get art, get their, their artists to be, especially their up and coming artists who are trying to establish themselves. It gives them flexibility. It's supporting them. It's giving them cash flow and liquidity that they might not otherwise have. Uh, it allows them to take, to invest in what they do, which previously was always very difficult. Artists were always having to sort of scrape buy in those first few years just to make anything at all. Yeah, and it also uh, creates a new audience, I think, because uh, that is exactly the point that people are able to buy works uh, for a low amount of money where probably almost everybody or also people with a lower income could participate in that. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the surprises, actually, in the first... I think about two days in to starting it, I was starting to get uh, messages from artists saying, you know, I've made my pledge. And I thought, wow, that's quick. You know, you've already sold a thousand pounds worth of work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was thinking when I started it that if they did that every month or two, that would be really great, which is what some people are doing, admittedly. But I was surprised how quickly many people were making that straight away. And then within the first week, I was getting messages from people who weren't in the art world at all but for the first time in their life had started to buy art mm -hmm. and they weren't buying one or two some were buying five six ten I mean I had a message one guy bought 40 pieces of work and he'd yeah. almost become addicted to this you know evening he'd sit on the sofa and surf through Instagram and and start building his collection and actually it was interesting their response was they realized that as they were doing this they were building a sensibility and they were building a collection for themselves so it wasn't initially it was just okay i like that i'll have it but over time as they got more sophisticated and because they could do this quite quickly they could in a way develop that sensibility very rapidly you know in, in weeks rather than years so they were starting to take more risks they were starting to buy more diverse work Uh, and what was noticeable, I mean, I went to, once lockdown ended, I'm going to a, a drinks party and there was, it was only a small one. There was only about eight people there, but every single person at a drinks party bought work off our support pledge. Oh. And I thought, gosh, that's remarkable. They didn't even know, they didn't know who I was when I got there. They didn't know it was me that had set it up. It just come up, um, in conversation. And I thought, well, that's remarkable that these people who... I've never met before, some of them, some of them I had, but most of them I've never met before, would know, would be able to stumble upon this idea and believe in it sufficiently that they would buy work from it. And that's, I mean, I still find that remarkable. I still haven't really yeah. come to terms with it. And I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I've, I've actually, in my usual way, been doing a lot of research on why that's the case. And, um, You know, the why, why is it that we, our brains are wired to do things in different states? And one of the things that I think was successful for our support pledge is there was this global sense of fear 
And there's two things that release the chemicals in our, in our brain to act. That's love and that's fear. And that you can either do nothing in, those, in that context. You can either hide yourself away when fear comes around or when love comes around for that matter. You can either become, you know, stand still and not act, which is, to be fair, is what a lot of people did when lockdown happened. But I think what our support pledge did was it said, okay, here's a way, here's a community you can engage with, with a set of values that offer a sense of hope and community and a way of being that can allow you to engage with that, that set of relationships that's going on in your chemical structure right now. I mean, I didn't do that on purpose. I didn't know I was doing that when I did it. Um, but I think in, in, in a way that's, that's what's happened. That's what's made it successful. And uh, are there plans to continue with artist support pledge indefinitely, no matter how the circumstances are? Is this something which is now set up? Yeah, I mean, there's now a sort of permanent website and the Instagram account is still running. I'm still running that, I'm still programming it. I'm still, I'm still working on it pretty much full time. Um, I'm trying as much as I can to wrestle my life as an artist back within that. I'm getting there bit by bit. But one of the things I'm doing at the moment is we are uh, applying for funding. We are talking to different institutions. We've just had um, an investment from Google Arts um, to help with that. We'll be getting donations from artists on the pledge. So you can actually go to www.rsupportpledge.com and make a donation and all of that either by paying regularly on a monthly basis or just as a one-off and all of that will hopefully get us to the point where I can employ enough staff to actually set this up as a permanent fixture because obviously I can't keep doing this forever but that well, that's the next stage we're getting there it's just you know doing anything on this scale takes a phenomenal amount of work and every day I get emails from around the world from different institutions and communities who want to collaborate uh, want to you know from all sorts from mineral bottle water companies to clothing manufacturers to to charities uh, you name it I get those emails um, people who are kind of inspired by its message and its community and want to get involved in some way and in some way want to contribute to that. So I, I don't think I have a great deal of choice about keeping it going. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't intend to when I started it. You know, I thought of it as a three month project. And to be honest, I thought if I reached three months, I thought that would be ambitious. I thought maybe I might get a few weeks out of it and then it'd probably die a death. Uh, it made it to three months handsomely, and now it's it's continuing to keep going. I mean, it's it's slowed down since lockdown ended. Obviously, we ex I expected that, so I've sort of set up to do that to deal with that. But obviously, now that's that's happened, and it's still growing day in day out, and it's still it's still been effective. Is it does need more management? Matt, I really think it's a great idea, and I wish you. Um a lot of luck with it and that it will be thriving. Um, and I want to thank you very much for taking this time to talk to me. Thank you, Daniela. That's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, 
the Fan Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect.